0: You're listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. For more information about our church, visit our website at redrocksbaptist.org or follow us on Instagram at redrocksbaptist. Perhaps the greatest archaeological discovery of all time was King Tut's Tomb by Howard Carter in 1922. Here's a a picture of what the inside of that tomb looks like. Now, Howard Carter had, had been a part of several digs in Egypt's Valley of the Kings for, for a number of years, and uh, in the early 1900s, scholars supposed and believed that they had found all that there was to find there in the Valley of the Kings. There was nothing left to find and that we should just move on. And yet, Howard Carter believed there was at least one more tomb left, uh, a boy king, a little known at that time, named Tutankhamun. And the remarkable thing about this Valley of the Kings is that they found many tombs, yes, but there were really none that were intact, that had full, a full assortment of, of ancient burial tools and objects in them. And so we really didn't know what or how ancient Egyptians and their pharaohs were buried. So Carter believed that he could find that, And he dug for five years, took five years, meticulously clearing debris over every square inch of that valley to make sure that he hadn't missed anything. And after agreeing with his patron to fund one more season of digging, I think it was four days later after that decision, one of his workers discovered a step which led to a door that bore the name King Tut. He had found it. And as he drilled a small hole in the door and peered in, his patron asked him if he could see anything. And as his eyes adjusted to the light and the flicker of the candle, he realized he had stumbled on the jackpot. He replied, yes, I see wonderful things. He had found a giant treasure box unmolested by ancient robbers. The tomb had four rooms containing over 5,000 items including King Tut's mummy. The most famous object is his burial mask, which rested on the head and shoulders of the teenage king. It's almost become symbolic for ancient Egypt. Just this one object. And what's what's fascinating to me is not just the story or the background, but, but the fact that King Tut's tomb didn't contain just a treasure of gold items that was incredibly valuable. His tomb held, held many items that were culturally and historically significant as well. So we could say that his tomb was a treasure chest, not just of monetary value, but of cultural and historical value as well. And yet as, we, as we've seen and as we've studied, there's a far greater treasure than even these objects. One that is available to every person. This treasure is the Lord Jesus Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Our 2023 theme of treasuring Christ comes from this verse, Colossians 2:3. And as we look at the larger context of this verse, we see that Paul presents Christ as the ultimate treasure. The ultimate treasure, not just one treasure among many, but the supreme, the ultimate, the preeminent treasure. Paul, back in chapter 1, described the preeminence of Jesus in chapter 1, 15 through 23. And then he shifted into a discussion of his own ministry at the end of chapter 1. His ministry, as we mentioned last week, is thoroughly Christ-centered. He preaches Jesus because Jesus is the mystery of God who brings the hope of glory to all people. He proclaims Jesus so that believers would grow up into his image to grow in spiritual maturity. And Paul relies on the Lord Jesus Christ for all the power he needs to fulfill his ministry. In this passage this morning, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, Paul prepares for the key section of the letter to follow. Because the next part of chapter 2 is going to discuss the main issue in the church of Colossae. The philosophy plaguing the church that claimed that spiritual progress could be had apart from Jesus. That spiritual progress comes through some means other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul rejects this teaching out of hand. Because Jesus is the ultimate treasure of the human heart. If you have Jesus, you have everything you need. So the sermon title today is Finding the Ultimate Treasure. And we need, we have to recognize right up front, we need this text and this message just as much as the ancient Colossians because our world devalues Jesus and even some Christians devalue Jesus even if they do it accidentally. We don't look at Jesus as if he's our ultimate treasure the thing that we need for for heavenly hope and present progress we just don't view him that way sometimes and yet that's what the scriptures teach us about him. Let me give you one illustration of this, how sometimes Christians can devalue him, even in, an, even in an accidental way. There's a t-shirt saying out there that goes something like this. There are variations of it. All I need today is a little bit of coffee and a whole lot of Jesus. Maybe you've seen that. I hope you don't have a t-shirt because I'm about to pick on it. <laughs> And I think that the saying is intended to be funny, right? Oh, we chuckle a little bit. That's how important coffee is. Huh? You're right. You know, I need Jesus and then I need a little boost to get me out of bed in the morning. But let's take that saying at face value for a minute. <laughs> that, that saying cheapens Jesus by putting him in the same category as a hot beverage, if our glorious Savior who died and rose and now reigns over the universe is simply an upgrade to our morning coffee, we have a massively skewed and shallow view of Jesus. We don't need Jesus plus anything because the Jesus plus formula doesn't raise things to his level. It pulls him down to the level of those other things. Jesus is the only treasure your soul will ever need, and this passage today gives us four reasons why Jesus is the ultimate treasure now i 'm going to cheat a little bit and back up to one chapter one verse twenty eight because the first one here is found in this verse colossians one twenty eight him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ. Jesus. Why is Jesus the ultimate treasure? First, because of the power of this treasure to change you. Because of the power of this treasure to change you. Here's a principle that is true throughout life. Our treasures change us. Now, when I think of the word treasure, I think a lot of the time about money. And money is a great example of this. Money has power to change us. The book of Proverbs teaches us that. In fact, the young adult group just spent three weeks working through Proverbs and one of the the things we noticed is that money has influence and it can affect you and it can shape your heart. Jesus himself taught this principle in Matthew 6, 21. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now, normally we think that, that our heart determines our actions or our words or our thoughts, and that's true. Jesus, in fact, says that in Matthew 12. But notice what leads to what in this verse. Where your treasure is, there your heart follows. The location of your treasure will set the course of your life. Jesus says that your treasure has the ability to change your heart because your treasure is what you worship. Making Jesus your treasure will change you. And this is one of the takeaways from from Colossians 1.28. Paul proclaimed Jesus so that we would become like Jesus. We would be conformed to his image. 2 Corinthians 3.18, we looked at it last week, but I'll bring it up again because it fits here. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that we are being transformed into Christ's image by the Spirit of God as we behold him in his glory. Well, what you'll see is that those who make Jesus, their treasure, find their hearts shaped by Christ. Our hearts follow our treasures. And this is not just in one area, like we can separate it out. It's a total and complete change. Every part of you is shaped by it. And so when Christ is your treasure, every part of you is transformed to resemble Christ from your beliefs and your worldview to your thinking to your words and your choices and your attitudes and your character and your lifestyle, Every part of you is changed. In fact, Paul fleshes out this very point in Colossians 3. Glance over there with me for a moment. should be a page or a swipe or two. And he says in verses 1 through 4, if you're raised with Christ, if that's true of you, then you should have a corresponding action. Seek those things which are above. We could say it this way, set your treasure on Christ who is above so, these opening four verses command us to set our minds and our hearts on Jesus because when we do, when our treasure lies in heaven, the rest of our lives follow that path. Verses 5 through 17 show us the type of character changes that will follow our treasure. Verse 5 put to death different things, and there's a whole laundry list of sins. Verse 8, there's another list of sins. Verse 12, Put on. These are the corresponding things that we are to put on or put into our life. We kill evil deeds in our bodies and put on godly character. And then in chapter 3, verse 18 through chapter 4, verse 6, Paul shows us how Christ, our treasure, changes our relationships in the home and in the workplace and in society. It changes our actions. We have to choose our treasure wisely, be careful. About what you allow to influence you. Because your treasure controls every part of your heart. And I think this is one of the reasons, one of the biggest reasons, truthfully, why Christians struggle to change. If your heart is set on something other than Christ, becoming like Christ is going to be very difficult, if not impossible. Any movement toward Jesus would be away from what you truly treasure. But on the flip side, if Jesus is your treasure, it's natural to be conformed to him. It's unnatural to pursue things that displease him. Sin is not just a list to be avoided, but but things that actually prevent you from attaining your treasure. So if you're struggling to grow spiritually, perhaps you need to ask yourself, what is my treasure? What is controlling my heart? What do I long for more than anything else? Is it Jesus or have I valued something above him? In fact, if you want to know what your treasure is, here's one way that you can do it. Here's a test. If you want to know what your treasure is, ask yourself, what do I complain about? Now, don't look at me like you don't complain. We all do it. What do we complain about? Complaining is, is a simple way that we express our displeasure with something. So what are you most, most displeased about? Complaining about your body breaking down or not looking the way you want probably means your health or your body image is your treasure. Complaining about a change to your routine at home or about a preference at church probably means your comfort or control is your treasure. Complaining about your pay or your rent or not having a vacation probably means that money is your treasure. We could go on and on and on. But when Christ is your treasure, these challenges, and they are challenges, they're met with a totally different set of responses. You can be content being tight with money. You can be gracious about changes to your preferences, and you can be thankful for aging or injuries. You say, what? (laughs) How? Because if Jesus is your treasure, he is all you need to be happy. He is sufficient for your growth. And so I appeal to you, make Christ your treasure. This is the first reason that Christ is the ultimate treasure. The second reason is because of this treasure's spiritual dividends. This is in chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and for those in Laodicea, and as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, and attaining to all the riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ. So, in verses one through two, Paul writes about his ministry again. He says that he has a great conflict for them. In fact, that word conflict is the same word striving at the end of chapter one and verse 29. It means to engage in a contest, to fight, to do something with great intensity or effort. So, who is Paul laboring for? He mentions three groups of people. Specifically, he says, for you, meaning the Colossians. He also mentions those in Laodicea, which was a neighboring city. Here's a map, and I'm hoping you can see it. I can see it from up here, but uh, I guess that doesn't help those of you in the back. Laodicea was a neighboring city of Colossae, and these two cities seem to be close not only in geography, but also in relationship. Because the same man brought these letters to them. You say, what other letter? In chapter 4, verse 16, Paul says, now when this epistle is read among you, see that it's also read in the church of the, of the Laodiceans and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. Paul sent two letters to this same location. For some reason, in the providence of God, the Spirit-inspired Colossians, we don't have the letter to Laodicea. It's also possible that the same man planted both of these churches, that man is Epaphras. Laodicea, you may remember, is one of the seven churches of Revelation 2 and 3, and Jesus told this church that they were lukewarm. So Laodicea is also mentioned, but Paul mentions one more group of people in chapter 2, verse 1, as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. And that probably means that Paul has never met these believers and that he's not met a lot of believers. And yet, he is laboring and praying on behalf of all these believers in cities and in churches that he's never met. We actually do that each Sunday when we pray for other churches. We're praying for people that we've never met. Some of us maybe have a friend or two in these other churches. I may know a pastor or two from over there or in different places, but the vast majority of those people we don't know, and yet we're praying for them, and we're praying for their spiritual dividends. Verse 2 begins with the word that, which reveals the purpose of this striving. Paul wants to produce certain qualities or certain effects in the lives of these believers. His ministry of proclaiming Christ to them will reap spiritual dividends. Now let's key in on that word dividends here for a moment. Because when you invest in the stock market, you receive dividends. And I googled highest yielding dividends, and apparently right now, The highest ones are averaging 6 to 13% return. Now, I'm not a financial planner, and I'm not giving you financial advice here. But those dividends give you more of the same. You invest money, you receive money back. Jesus is the ultimate treasure because of what he produces in us. He also gives us dividends, but his dividends are spiritual in nature. He works in us to bear fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of wisdom from above, James 3, the fruit of works that please him. And his yield does not return 6 to 13%. His dividends repay multiplied thousands, Mark 4, 20. But these are the ones sown on good ground, those who hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit, some 30-fold, some 60 And some 100. That's 3,000, 6,000, or 10,000% on your return. If there was a fund that gave us a 3,000% return on your investment, you would put all of your money there for good reason. And yet, that's what Jesus promises to do in the hearts and the lives of the people who treasure him. What are these dividends? that bear fruit in our lives. Paul mentions four in verse two. The word encouragement first literally means to call alongside. It has a range of meaning. In fact, uh, it's a very broad word in some ways. It's translated appeal or urge, exhort, encourage, comfort, implore, request, or entreat. And you may be thinking, why is, it, why is there such variety in the ways that we translate that word? It, it highlights the fact that when we encourage someone, when we call someone alongside of us to lift their spirits, we need to tailor what we're doing and saying to their situation. I'll give you an example of it. The NCAA tournament, March Madness, is wrapping up this week, and I believe the finals game is tomorrow night. Yesterday's game was, there was a buzzer beater, which is incredible. And this tournament is one of the highlights of the year in the sports world because there are 64 teams that, that enter into the tournament and every game is do or die. For 98% of these athletes, they don't play again after this, this level. Only a few go on to professionals, whether here in America or, or overseas. And so this is it. This is their shining moment, as the song says. And so there's intensity and drama and, and these, these college students are... Are giving everything they have and their coaches are great encouragers if you watch the games you'll see that a coach will often call one of his players over to him put his arm around them and speak to them and what he says to them depends on the situation the distraught senior who knows that they're losing receives comfort the tired player is exhorted to keep going the star player who brought them through is praised that's encouragement It's giving each player the boost that they need. When Paul says that our treasure is in Christ, we find encouragement. And it's it's tailored to our situation. It's tailored to our need. And so true believers don't gain encouragement by looking around and saying, Oh, what can I, what will make me feel better? True encouragement is found looking up, looking to Christ. The second thing Paul mentioned is being united in love. Treasuring Jesus will increase our love for God and also our love for one another, which then bonds us together in unity. There's a connection here, which sometimes we don't think about. How we treat others will always be downstream of what we treasure. You say, that's a funny way to put it. Yes, but you'll remember it. We treat people well when they can help us gain our treasure, and we disregard them when they can't. For instance, a person who craves approval from others will change the way they act depending on who they're with. They will ignore some people and fawn over others. Why? Because they're after approval. They use people to get their way. But the person who treasures Jesus will love other people the way that Jesus did, which was sacrificially, selflessly, and graciously. Historically, Christians have been the ones that have ministered to the marginalized, to the poor, to the needy, to the sick. That's why so many hospital systems have Baptist or Presbyterian or Catholic in them because Christians, people of the Bible, and I know Catholics and and, and us are different, But there's a heart for people because of our heart for God. The only way that we can love others like Jesus commanded us to is by loving God supremely. Because when we love Him supremely, then loving other people becomes part of our DNA because that's what our Savior did. And the more we love Christ, the closer we get to other Christians. Unity is built through love and humility. A common treasure draws people together. When you discover that someone else has the same hobby as you, what happens between the two of you? There's a connection point, a bond perhaps, that that springs up naturally and immediately. You eagerly swap stories about your hobby and enjoy the love you share in common with this stranger. About six months ago, we had a guy come into the office on a random weekday. Maybe it was nine months ago. And he came in, he said, Oh, I'm about to go for a bike ride. Can I use your facilities? I said, Yeah, where are you going? What do you, what do you ride? There's a connection because I attempt to ride a bike occasionally now and then. We, had, we hit it off immediately. I don't even know, I don't remember the guy's name, but there was a connection point. You see, the body of Christ doesn't just have a common hobby, we have a common head. Those who love Jesus will be drawn closer to one another. So if you want to increase unity in the church, we actually all should love Jesus more. That's how we increase unity. The third dividend Paul mentions is a settled faith. And this phrase is a mouthful. All the riches of the full assurance of understanding. When we understand the riches of our Savior Jesus, we gain spiritual assurance. Our faith is not tossed and turned about. It is settled. And there may be people here that wrestle with assurance of their salvation. Maybe some young people. Maybe some folks that that are struggling with, am I really saved? Did I say the right thing? I don't feel like a Christian. Can a Christian do this and feel this way? There are many people who feel that and who wrestle with the same thing. So don't suffer alone. The Bible says that you can be confident of your salvation. 2 Peter 1, 5 through 9 discusses the same issue. If you are growing in your faith and adding virtue to your faith, Peter says that assurance will fill your heart. But if you're not growing, if you haven't made Christ your treasure, it's like you're blind and have forgotten that you were purged from your old sins. You won't feel good about your relationship with Christ because you're not walking with him. And that discomfort in your soul is the conviction of God to draw you back into fellowship with him. The closer you walk with Jesus, the more settled in your faith you will become as you experience the spiritual riches given to you in Christ. The fourth dividend is increasing spiritual insight. This is the last phrase of verse 2. It says, to the knowledge of the mystery of God. Remember, the mystery of God, as the end of chapter 1 explains, is Christ's salvation proclaimed to the Gentiles. Our relationship to Christ, the hope of glory. And one of Paul's major ministry goals was to present Christ to believers so they would know him intimately, that they would know him deeply. And this is one of our goals today. In fact, it's our mission around here, to know Christ and make him known. And the only way that we know Christ is by going deeper and deeper into fellowship with him. And as we grow, there's this unfolding of where we gain greater spiritual insight and become mature in our perspective. Now, the end of verse 2 uses the word riches, which then previews Paul's next point in verse 3. The third reason why Christ is the ultimate treasure is because of the riches found in this treasure. It's our theme verse for the year, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, I mentioned King Tut's tomb at the beginning. Let's return back to ancient Egypt for a moment. His tomb had a vast number of riches in it, 5,000 plus objects. And no, I did not look at every single one, but there are a couple of top 10 articles I looked through. And There there are a couple of really interesting objects to me. The first is the pure gold-handled daggers, because these weren't just ornate. The blade of these were actually made of iron, and they, experts say, uh, that they were from a meteor, because iron technology wasn't around at the time that he lived and died. Pretty incredible. Uh, Gold sandals were also found in the tomb. I don't know how comfortable those would be, but I think they're Cool. And, and these sandals had engraved on their soles, like the bottom, the nine traditional enemies of the, the, of the kingdom of Egypt, which meant that when King Tut walked on them, he was literally walking all over his enemies. It's kind of cool. Now picture Jesus as a treasure box or a room like, like King Tut's tomb. And when you open that treasure chest, What do you find? Paul specifically says you find wisdom and knowledge. You see, the false teaching in Colossae used arguments and reasons to try to convince the believers to abandon Christ. To go to something else or to do some other ritual or to practice some other habit to gain spiritual growth. And Paul couldn't imagine doing that because all wisdom and knowledge is found In Jesus. One commentator said it this way, in Christ is found all that one needs in order to understand spiritual reality and lead a life pleasing to God. You and I need wisdom and knowledge to live in a manner worthy of the Lord. And there are a couple of connections here that I want to flesh out and explore. This reminds us of Proverbs teaching on wisdom. Proverbs frequently personified wisdom as a woman. And this lady wisdom taught the simple. She gave insight about life and she blessed those who had her. Listen to Proverbs 2, 1 through 5. This is just one of several passages. My son, this is wisdom speaking. If you receive my words and treasure my commands within you so that you incline your ear to wisdom and apply apply your heart to understanding, Yes, if you cry out for discernment and lift up your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Actually, I think this is Solomon writing about wisdom. Wisdom speaks later in chapters eight and nine. But the message is the same. Wisdom leads to insight, to discernment, to the fear and the knowledge of God. So finding wisdom required a person to treasure wisdom and search for it like finding a buried treasure. What does that sound like? It sounds like what we're talking about right here in Colossians 2. Paul assigns to Jesus the same qualities and virtues of wisdom in the Old Testament. In fact, he goes one step beyond that and in 1 Corinthians chapter one, he says that Christ is the wisdom of God. To gain Jesus, what do we have to do? It's the same thing we have to do to gain wisdom. We value him and search for him like one would look for a buried treasure. Then we will find him. And then we will gain discernment and understanding and insight and the fear and knowledge of God. That's what wisdom gains you. And when we're talking about wisdom, we're not simply referring to how to make a good decision. Certainly that's involved. That's James chapter one, especially. But But wisdom is not simply that that ability to make a wise choice, a good choice. Jesus guides us and directs us. But wisdom in the Old Testament and wisdom here in Colossians refers to the skill to live in a way that pleases God. Wisdom is knowing and doing the will of God. And here's the second connection. That's exactly what Paul prays for in chapter 1, verses 9 through 12. If you take notes in your Bible, jot that cross reference down or draw an arrow back to it. Paul prayed that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual insight. That's what he's praying for. And when we are filled with the knowledge of God's will and wisdom and understanding, what happens? We, we walk worthy of the Lord. We please him. We bear spiritual fruit. We grow in our spiritual walk. We're strengthened with his power. We are increasingly more and more thankful. The fountainhead of all these things is pursuing wisdom wisdom which is pursuing Christ. The point Paul is making is this. The only way to please God and live rightly is to gain wisdom, which comes through our relationship to Christ because he's the the vault, the fountain, the treasure of all wisdom and knowledge. Now what's amazing, even beyond this, is that this isn't the only place in Scripture that refers to the riches of Christ. I had a lot more material under this point that I had to trim, so I'm just going to mention these things briefly. The riches of Christ are glorious, Colossians 1.27. They are full of grace, Ephesians 1.7. They are inexhaustible and unsearchable, Ephesians 3.8. That last one to me is mind-boggling. The riches of Christ are inexhaustible and unsearchable, and yet what are we invited to do? We're invited to know what is unknowable, unsearchable. Christ, we could say, is a well without bottom, a journey without end, an ocean without shore. Christ is the ocean so so big that we can't grasp his sheer magnitude, yet he's truly knowable. How? The best way I can describe it is with an analogy. Knowing Christ is like scooping a small part of the ocean in a sand bucket. It really is ocean water in there, but in that bucket we have contained and and quantified not even a tiny fraction of the vastness of the ocean. That's what it's like to know Christ. We can truly possess him and know him, and yet what we possess is just such a small fraction of who he really is. John Flavel, the Puritan, wrote this. The knowledge of Christ is profound and large. This is a boundless, bottomless ocean, though something of Christ may be unfolded in one age and something in another, yet eternity itself cannot full unfold him. And the magnitude of our Savior, the vastness of his glory, really should drive us to our knees in confession. We have to admit that Jesus is too big for our small minds. And we have to confess our pride that believes we have Jesus pretty well figured out. Can you figure out the depths of the ocean in your bucket? Can you know the mysteries of the deeps in that little pail? How much less can we grasp the depths of our infinite treasure? How little we know of our Savior and yet how satisfied we are with what little we know. The ocean at least has limits. Our treasure has none. But we also have to confess not just our pride that thinks that we're pretty good and have figured them out, but our pride of comparison. Because in the grand scheme of things, your bucket of ocean water may be bigger than the next person's, but does even a 50-gallon drum capture the glory of the ocean? Does it plumb its depths? And in any knowledge we have is still minuscule. Compared to the vastness that lies before us. And so the scriptures would use these words do not be conceited, thinking of yourself as great, because your bucket of water has a little more than your neighbor's. The ocean remains beyond you. How feeble we are when we turn our gaze away from Christ. A few minutes of gazing satisfies us when there's an ocean to explore. He is a limitless treasure. Finally, we need to hasten here. Verses 4 through 5 show us one final reason why Christ is the ultimate treasure. And it's because of the stability that this treasure brings. Verses 4 and 5. Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet am I with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ." Many people believe that money will bring them security. That's a lie. Don't be deceived. Our treasure, Jesus, is the only person, the only treasure that can bring us security and stability because he protects us from being deceived by other philosophies. That's in verse four. And Paul is going to expand on this point over the rest of chapter two. So I'm gonna save a discussion of this really until the next time we come back. But the second reason that, that we have stability in Christ is because this treasure leads to a deeper faith. Paul started this section of his ministry by rejoicing in his suffering, chapter 1, verse 24. And now he concludes it in verse 5 with rejoicing again, this time because he heard about their stable faith. Though he was absent from from them and though he had never met them, He was with them in his prayers and with them in spirit. And when he heard of their growth and their progress, he rejoiced. He gave thanks that God was at work in their midst to keep them faithful to Christ. He specifically says, your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. Picture a line of soldiers who are in rank and are dug in and ready to stand firm in the battle. That's like what he's saying. And what he'll do in verses 6 and 7 is pick up this idea of depth and firmness as he gets into his next point. What other treasure brings stability? Money is volatile, as we've discovered the last couple of years. People are fickle. Power is deceiving. Pleasure is unsatisfying. Christ alone gives us stability. Stability. Because Christ is the ultimate treasure. And if he's the ultimate treasure, then then here's what you have to do. You have to assign him a value. You have to decide what he's worth to you. The fact of the matter is he is a treasure and he is the ultimate treasure, but you have to decide that for yourself. Jesus told two stories in Matthew 13 to help us grasp this very point he said, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and then hid again. And for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. What's Jesus worth to you? Because the scripture says, that he's worth giving up literally everything to gain. Are you willing to give up everything else to possess him? Let's conclude with prayer. Father in heaven, we ask for your spirit to work. We must confess our feebleness, even my own feebleness in presenting this today trying to describe the the vastness of christ is is so difficult to do and and yet it's it's so beautiful and glorious because it makes us want to keep coming back to him and keep drinking of this fountain over and over because it satisfies us and fills us and and blesses us i pray that this last question would resonate in our midst what are we willing to give up to gain christ and i pray that as the spirit moves today that that each person here would see that there is no other treasure worth possessing and that they would make the necessary changes in their life to get hold of Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to audio from Red Box Baptist Church. If you enjoyed this content, please consider sharing it with others. Our mission at Red Box Baptist Church is to know Christ and to make him known. May God bless you as you follow him.